Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with the amazing Melissa Wingard and we dove into her area of expertise, privacy. We covered a variety of topics, including PII, how companies are failing to identify they hold this information, and how companies need to be taking an improved stance on how to improve their privacy. We aren't just talking small businesses here, we are talking multinationals too. If you'd like to know more about how Mel can help your organisation create better privacy strategies, then please keep on listening. Mel, firstly, I want to thank Bridget for finding my original post. I think it was on Twitter, but I've done a few and then I thought it was for offensive security. And you're like, actually, no, it's about privacy. And I was like, yes, sorry, I do do a few tweets. So I really appreciate her connecting the two of us. And then when we spoke, I really loved the way in which you had a very unique opinion on the privacy side of things. And and what I mean by that is you're very, very honest. And I felt that it was necessary to get you on the show to hear your thoughts and opinions. But before we dive into your knowledge, I'd love to start off our podcast around talking about you and your journey. So can you please walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? So I am actually a trained lawyer. I have a bit of a strange background though. So I graduated law in 2004. Um, I thought I wanted to be a banking and finance lawyer. So I did corporate finance and I did compliance work at that point in time for an accounting firm. And the focus at that point was obviously all Sarbanes-Oxley. How I ended up in the IT technology cybersecurity world is that in 2009, I started work with some high frequency traders. And as part of that, I mean, I got the role initially as the banking and finance lawyer, but it turns out that they had more IT staff than they actually had um, traders. And as a result, and I had a really great general counsel there who was a very much an engineer IT focus. And so he put me on this path of technology. And the key thing that he always taught me was that um, you need to understand the business, you need to understand how it operates. And as a result, as a junior lawyer, I was sent out to patch panels and um, learn how to draw network architecture diagrams and stuff that's a little bit unusual. Um, What that led me into was actually working for technology companies. And in 2014, I started as head of legal for the Asia Pacific region for a cybersecurity uh, company. And that put me on my current path of being interested in privacy, technology, um, cybersecurity. And now I work as a special counsel for Phillips Ormond Fitzpatrick Lawyers, and we're part of a specialized intellectual property firm. So I head up the commercial law division with a, a particular focus on technology, cybersecurity, privacy, and obviously helping companies to commercialize their intellectual property. So are you liking the cybersecurity space better? Well, I mean, obviously you are, but do you find it, is it more complicated than your traditional banking and finance trading area? It's probably not more complex. I think the documents that come out of banking and finance are a lot more complicated, but I think the interesting thing that <laughs> that I've seen a shift is where I kind of love, there's a real intersection, I think, between cybersecurity and privacy and technology, because um, that's what has kind of brought the whole privacy issue to the fore is this entire fundamental shift in the way that we use technology and the way that it is integrated in every single aspect of our lives. So I see that as a lot more the technology to me is a lot more fun. And I was it was funny reminiscing about it, thinking uh, in preparation was that back when I was working with the banking and finance um, and also, you know, privacy at that point, I had one general counsel tell me that not to worry about it because the penalties involved were being like being whipped with a wet noodle. So it wasn't really something that was necessarily considered. And now I've seen this, you know, amazing shift over the years. So it's just of fundamental importance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's dive into the privacy side of things because I know that you and I touched on this briefly when we had a chat. 
And let's let's start with the SMBs side of things and then we can sort of work in towards the enterprise side of it. But can you explain some of the key issues that you're sort of seeing at this level? Yeah, I think with the small to medium uh, enterprises, small to medium businesses, there's a few things that keep coming up. And I think one of the main things for me when I'm looking at it is that there's this idea that it doesn't apply to them or they don't need to be worried about it. And yeah, so I really think that what they're not actually necessarily understanding is how the data that they're collecting is either personal information or how that actually relates to the services they're providing. And on top of that, I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding as to whether they think the Privacy Act applies to them or doesn't apply to them because there is that small business exemption under the Privacy Act. But I don't think that means that small businesses can just throw their hands in the air and say, oh, look, we're not regulated for this. So you know what? We're not going to worry about it because small businesses are a target. That's what we keep seeing again and again and again. They're highly susceptible to vulnerabilities. They also don't necessarily have the security culture around the way that they operate. And so they're actually more likely to potentially breach the act and have some sort of um, unauthorized disclosure of personal information. They may not even be aware of it or know how to handle it. So I think there's a few different things that go into it and recognizing the value of the data that they hold, it's, it just has to be something that they start to, to consider and see it. Not privacy isn't just a compliance issue. It's actually a business issue for them and will only become a more important one. So when you say small businesses in their head, they're like, I don't need to be worried because I don't know, they run Keith's barbecue warehouse. <laughs> they hold all this PII, no one will ever find me. So it doesn't matter. Is that the sort of mentality and the perspective that these companies have? I think that's right. I don't know if it's necessarily always so overt as that. I think sometimes just, and look, we're all guilty of this, you know, just the day-to-day getting through of, you know, making sure that your business runs and you've met all the other, I guess, more pressing compliance issues that can sometimes take over. So I don't know that there's always this um, overt, I'm going to ignore it. I have in some instances heard that kind of viewpoint, but I think sometimes too, it's just, a, oh, I might get there eventually. Or, you know, Keith's barbecue doesn't realize that every time he's putting an order out, he's actually asking for name, address, date of birth, email address and he's not sure where that data is now stored or what's being done with it and you know have we collected it in a fashion that um, he can then use it again for marketing so I think there's just not the thinking that goes around it either because they don't see it as an issue because it's just another thing on the long list of business um, issues that they need to address and it, it hasn't risen to the top of the pile yet. You mentioned there that there's a small to mid-sized company's that aren't even aware they hold PII. So can you talk through what this is exactly and how companies can go about identifying PII and what they should be doing about it from a privacy point of view? Yeah, so I think part of the the reason that that struck me particularly was, I mean, I've obviously held various roles in-house and now I advise clients, but I've worked for a couple of clients where when I've said to them, you know, we're looking through contracts and we're looking at the privacy clauses and I'm saying, you know, can we comply with these particular privacy clauses? And um, the natural reaction was, oh, we don't hold any personal information. And I started asking a few more detailed questions and said, you know, can you explain to me why you don't think we don't hold any personal information? And the response was, well, we provide services to our clients. We don't actually hold any personal information. And when I started to delve into it, what I started to do with them was actually, first of all, worked out the business. So I sat down and had a look at the business and said, okay, what is it that you're actually doing? So they had a portion of their business that was dedicated to marketing. So as part of that marketing, they were attending conferences, they were going out and meeting with people. And obviously at each of those, they were collecting names, email addresses. And whilst it is always collected in that kind of a sensible fashion that it's going to be used for marketing. You still need to have a process around the way that you're going to deal with that data and how you actually manage it. So that was kind of, and I guess there's a sort of tying in both, both your question of, you know, how do they not know, but also how do they go and assess it? Because 
you need to think about the way the business operates. So if you've got any kind of marketing or sales, you're more than likely collecting personal information. You should have a look at it. The other area I think that people often forget is have a look at what your clients send you. So yeah, you, you could be just providing services, but what are the clients sending you to provide services on? Um, if you're providing support for a software, for example, are your clients actually handing you log files that contain their customers' information? And in which case that's personal information and you need to make sure you're maintaining it in accordance with the Privacy Act. So I think it's easy to think about privacy as this you know kind of theoretical esoteric concept, but I think the harder thing for organizations to do, and even us as individuals, Individuals is to think about, okay, I have all this data coming in and it's coming in through various aspects. It might be online, it might be through email, it might be face-to-face. What is that type of information? Is it personal information? And that, again, is another thing that's confusing because I think people have this sense that a personal information is I've got somebody's name, a full name, so obviously first name, surname, I've got their address, I've got their email address, so that's personal information. There seems to be this sense of it has to be this pile of information, whereas in fact, you could just have information which is able to identify the individual from the information, which may not be overtly personal to, to I guess, the way people are thinking about it. So if I have, I don't know, a piece of data, which is Amelia lives in Brunswick and owns a blue bicycle. And for example, there's only one Amelia in Brunswick and only one that owns a blue bicycle. Then you suddenly actually identify that person, whether you intended to or not. So I think this is, it's taking that time to think about how does your business operate? Where are you collecting data? from, what type of data is it, and then determining from there whether it is actually personal information. And if you are collecting that personal information, so even just a straight email address, cookies these days are considered personal information under the GDPR. So it's just understanding all that data and then saying, well, what am I actually doing with it? Am I storing it locally on servers? Am I putting it into the cloud? Um, if it's in the cloud, is it being transferred offshore? Where are my backups being held? Probably what most people want. And, and I know it's exactly what they want. They want this very simple answer. They want a tick box that says, if I do all these things, then I will comply with the Privacy Act um, or I will comply with my privacy obligations. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the answer anymore. It's taking that time to think, know what data you're holding, understand how you're supposed to treat it and handle it, and then make sure you document what you're going to do and then actually stick to what you say you're going to do. I think another thing that you and I talked about too was why do people need to hold all of this information? And what I mean by that is retailers, what's your date of birth? And I think to your point that you made was, okay, cool, you can give your date of birth, but do you really need to uh, list yeah. the year as well? I completely agree with that. I think one of the things we've done over the years, and, and this is, I'm guessing this is from a marketing perspective, actually, this I'm sure it's from a marketing perspective, even though I'm not a marketer, is this desire to have all this data that we can then use to analyze and determine which clients we want to bring in. And, you know, all these businesses are collecting all of this data without thinking about, well, do I actually need it? And in fact, am I better placed with my customers if I show that I've thought about this? So instead of the default please give me every single piece of information about you. Let's think about it. Okay, I'm buying a pair of shoes online. Yes, obviously you need to deliver them somewhere. So you need to have my address and my name, but do you, yeah, do you also need to know my date of birth and do these need to be non-optional because often, you know, you fill out the forms online and it says you can't go any further until you complete every single one of these fields because they're all mandatory. And you think, do you, is that really mandatory? Do you really need to know if I'm um, signing up for an online blog or an online news website? Why do you need to know my address? Why isn't just my email address and my name sufficient so that I can read this article? I just, I think we've gone to this default position of the more data I have, the better it is because I can then use analytics to identify my clients and my customers. But I'm not sure we're sophisticated enough necessarily to use the information. I'm not sure that we can actually protect the information correctly. And as a client or as a customer, 
I get nervous because I've actually not bought things off websites because I've thought, I don't want you to have my date of birth. I don't want you to have all of this information about me that if it gets out could potentially harm me or hurt me. Yeah, it can be very off-putting. I was trying to download, I was trying to download a white paper the other day, and I realized mm. I wanted all this information. And I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm literally, <laughs> I feel like I was almost selling my soul to the devil for the level of information that they wanted. And yeah. I think it's something that people don't really consider. And because I'm, I'm obviously in this space and I'm considering it all of the time, but for the people who aren't, they probably just go, "Yep, cool. I'll just sign off anything, and it doesn't really matter." Probably because they're not reading the terms and conditions and understanding where their data is being put or what it's being done with, and, and who's looking at it. I think that's. A, I mean, that's an excellent point, and that's. I've spoken to quite a lot of people who just say to me, "Well, this is the, you know, I've given up my right to privacy. I've given up any expectation that I'll have privacy," and I think that's actually a sad state for the world because privacy is a fundamental human right, and we actually, as individuals, should be concerned about our privacy. We should be the ones that are talking to companies about it and saying, you know what, I would have loved to have downloaded your white paper, but I didn't. And you know why I didn't? Because you want all this information on me. And I don't think that that's relevant in order for me to access a piece of information. And you're right, nobody reads the terms and conditions. Um, And that's actually where, when I get to those privacy policies, and yes, I am a geek and yes, obviously a lawyer, (laughs) I actually, I do read them and I look at going, hang on a second, you're going to take my information, but somehow as part of this, I'm also giving you consent to pass my information on to marketing companies or companies that sell databases, or I don't actually feel as though I then have any control because once the information's out, you know, how do you pull it back again? Even if you say, please give me access to my information, which you're entitled to do, please delete my information or correct my information. How do you then know that all the other places it's been passed on to, you can, you know, go and find it and actually correct it. So we, I think we as consumers as well need to get a little bit more sophisticated. And I think we need to be asking companies how and why they're protecting our data. So here's an interesting one. You probably would have, of course, heard about it, the whole Facetune app, and apparently people did this deep dive analysis on the terms and conditions that were ludicrous. Did you do much investigation into that specifically? or <laughs> I didn't actually because I looked at it and thought, there is no way in heck I would touch this anyway. <laughs> so I saw all the outrage on Twitter and figured that the Twitterverse had had it well and truly covered. Because, but it was just another example. I mean, to me, that was one of those overt examples where – it naturally made people uneasy because of the potential that it could be used for. And what I thought was interesting about that was you had, you know, the Twitter sphere and everybody was going absolutely crazy about it. But yet I wonder how many websites or how many things they'd gone online to buy that day and handed over probably more information, admittedly, maybe not their biometrics, but it still is something to think about. It's like, why do we get so outraged about that when mm-hmm. Samsung or Google Pixel or someone or iPhone already has a copy of your thumbprint? <laughs> Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think it's something to take note of um, when people are buying things online on the terms and conditions. But what's your advice on how companies should be taking a stance on how to improve their privacy and communicate to their customers to build that trust in the market? My view, I think I feel that there needs to be a little bit more openness and transparentness about what companies are doing and how well they can actually handle the data. Um, Think about what you're going to do with that data. Think about what you're collecting it for. I mean, the number of times that I've worked with organizations and they will have collected data for one particular purpose and then decided to use it for something different. And it's usually not 
maybe not necessarily the same department collecting the information who then wants to use the information. But I think there's this sense of companies need to A, upskill everyone, maybe not just the yearly compliance training, you know, Mm -hmm. have a little bit more of a focus on privacy, security, like build that security culture because you can't go to the market and tell them how you're improving your privacy and your information security if you're not actually doing it. And that's where I feel like People are saying that it's important and it's like, yes, your privacy is fundamental to us. Um, But by the way, our privacy policy says we're going to share it with 15 different organizations and we probably can't even identify the data that you've actually given us right now. But, you know, it really matters to us. Like, I would give you more credence and have a lot more respect for you if, if you actually said to me open, you know, if you said we've decided that for this category of data, because all you're doing is X with us, we only need to collect Y data and here's the extent to which we're going to use it. And that's it. I think companies need to be honest with themselves um, at all levels, small, large, <laughs> multinationals. You need to be honest about how good you are at this space. And if you're not there, you know, put the time and effort into it. Build the security culture within your organization and then have that flow out. Anyone who's spruiking how wonderful they are in this space is probably not the people that are actually at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I might be hated what, for that. <laughs> what's, what's that saying? Was it show it, don't say it? Is that what it is? Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't know. I think something, that's it. Something like, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Someone like, can correct more, me if I'm wrong. That's fine. <laughs> the more that you tell me how wonderful you are, the less inclined I am to believe it. What I want to see is not a generic privacy policy. What I want to know is if I call you up, I'm not going to get the runaround to, to get my data mm-hmm. and to correct my data. Because that's the other thing. We have the right to correct the data that people hold on us. How many, how often people do it, I don't know. Um, and it will be interesting to see whether as Australia sort of strengthens its privacy stance. We've obviously just recently had the notifiable data breaches scheme brought in and that was to try and bring us into adequacy with EU regulations along with, um, there's now talk I believe of expanding the remit of the Privacy Act, especially around maybe smaller businesses and I think there's also talk about increasing the penalties and the fines and one of the things that I found really interesting about GDPR that was the fallout from the whole thing was because there was so much media attention on GDPR it made EU residents a lot more aware of their own rights um, as citizens and their own rights as to privacy. And so what you've been seeing out of GDPR is a lot more people actually, data subjects is what they're called, but the data subjects going to organisations and exercising their data subject rights to say, show me the data that you're holding on me. If the company then can't produce the data, what you're seeing is an uptick in complaints to the regulators and supervisory authorities. And you're actually seeing a lot of, there's less media attention on them, but there's a lot of smaller fines coming out, which is um, purely because organisations are unable to meet their requirements when it comes to the data subject rights. Uh, So whether as our privacy commissioner gets a bit more traction and and has a bit more, has some more teeth to it, whether you'll start to see Australian citizens taking that up as well. I suppose there is a slight difference in that the EU actually has privacy enshrined as a fundamental human right, but I mean, we should have it here. We should have a right to privacy. So let's let's talk about large corporations now. I'd love to get your opinion on how companies should be communicating to their customers the importance of privacy. And I ask this because I see a lot of enterprises talking about it, but it really just comes across disingenuous. Like it comes across as really fake and contrived. Yes. I think it gets, sorry, I shouldn't just say yes. I think it can. I think it really can come across as um, disingenuous. And I think the reason for that is it's spoken about like, it's yet another compliance issue um, or it's just spoken about like it's this it's this thing, it's privacy. We care about your privacy. We care about um, the environment. We care about sustainability. And it's another one of these catchwords. And 
what I want to see is, okay, well, you've made that statement, but what are you actually doing to back it up? So I think it's a hard place because I think there is a world now, an expectation where it's like, you have to say that you care about privacy, but you have to be able to show that if you're saying that, then you are actually, sorry. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think for companies, what they need to do is don't just talk about how it's important to them. Yeah. What we've been talking about is be able to show what you've done to actually emphasize that you care about privacy. So show that your forms have shortened to the level of information required to actually give the services that you give. Think about whether, depending on some of the services you provide, do you necessarily need any personal information? If I, as a consumer, don't feel that you think my data is important to you other than as some sort of marketable you know, asset that has a dollar sign against it, then why would I believe that you really care about it? And we always hear these stories of companies coming out and say, we care about your privacy, and then they'll have a data breach or there'll be a disgruntled employee that will take reams and reams of data and sell it on the dark web or expose it on WikiLeaks. Um, and look, I know there's things that you, that you can't always avoid those. There will be circumstances where this may happen, but it's easier to forgive a company in those circumstances if you truly believe that they had done everything possible. So they, you know, thought about their information security, they'd considered what data they really need to hold on you. They'd had some sort of program to actually delete, destroy data. I think that's something that companies just seem very reluctant to do. If you don't need the data, delete it. <laughs> it's, it just seems like the most common sense thing to say and yet the hardest thing to actually implement because the question is always, but what if I need it? You know, and I guess as a lawyer, it's a tendency for that we have to, you know, hold on to it because what if we need it? But when it comes to people's personal data, do you really need to hold it? Like if I'm going to come back and buy another pair of shoes off you or back to our friend's barbecue store, if I'm going to come back and buy another barbecue. Well, you know, <laughs> it might be a bit of a hassle, but collect the data at the time if you need well, to. Clearly or- Keeves Barbecue is doing some serious <laughs> marketing. <laughs> we are coming into summer. <laughs> so would you say in regards to company says we're really happy about our privacy, we think it's really there, they have a breach, is it possible to say, look, we as a company, we've done reasonable endeavours to make sure that our data is in line with the Privacy Act? Is, is that a fair assumption to then say that? Yeah, and I think if that's true, then I think that's what you can say. And I think that is your, I was going to say, we're on a security podcast, so you know for sure. There's there's the honestly a view that if everyone will be hacked at some point in time. And if you haven't been hacked, it's probably just that you don't know about it um, rather than it hasn't happened to you. So I don't think it's fair to say just because somebody had a hack that they didn't have good controls or they didn't have a good privacy program in place. I think it's then how they respond to that event that will really determine um, whether a company is serious about privacy or not. So if they have... um, you know, so if they're able to to follow their own processes and they're able to give information quickly and they don't try to obfuscate and they're able to say to you, yes, look, this has happened, but we know the information we held on you, it's this type of information. This is what happened to the extent that you can know what actually happened and here are the controls we put in place to mitigate it and here's what we've learned from it. I think that would give consumers a lot more confidence. Um, right now what we see is a lot of, you know, in the media you see a lot of, is it finger pointing or is it, oh, we think we did everything right and no real and I, I mean, I know there is this balance of if you're in the middle of trying to respond to an incident, you're probably not going to be able to give too much out. But um, if it's people whose information has been impacted, then if you can identify them and correspond with them, that's going to obviously give people a lot more faith in that what you're saying you're doing, you're actually doing. And I get it does get challenging, though, because you are talking about oh, potentially thousands, millions of consumers that are affected. So it is uh, a like that yeah. awkward Ashley Madison breach. <laughs> Yes. So something yes. like that. 
be very awkward yeah. to try to um, respond to that in the market. That was actually interesting, the way in which that was handled, I think. That was a fair few years ago now, like 2015, mm. I think it was. It was quite a few years ago, actually. Yes. People have different opinions on it, but I think that that, that would have been hard considering the, the the circumstances of that particular business. Mm. And I think that would have added an extra layer of complexity to, oh, gosh, how do we respond to this? There there is that. And this is where, again, I think everyone looks a bit for a magic bullet when it comes to privacy. And unfortunately, it's, it's really considering what data do I hold? What is it that I know about these people? And what is the potential harm or damage that will be caused to them in the event that it's disclosed? And that's where you need to make sure that you're aligning your controls and your processes with the potential damage you're going to cause to an individual by having their personal information disclosed in an unauthorized, disclosed in any fashion, but certainly in an unauthorized breach like that was. And it was a lot. Yeah. It's a lot to process in many respects as well. <laughs> I remember working for, I was in security yeah. working and there were, yeah, there were people in the firm that obviously were on this particular platform. And so we had to notify them that uh, this is an incident. Uh, you may want to change your password. That was uh, an unfortunate uh, situation. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and it is one of those things that it does suddenly make you, it really brings certain apps or should say aspects, but it does bring certain organizations and certain apps into, I guess, more, more of a critical view in my opinion, because, you, you know, often we're reading about dating apps being hacked. So, and my health record obviously was a huge one, but concerns around health data being hacked. So it puts us as consumers on notice that we've got to be careful or at least think about who we're actually willing to give our personal information to. And if that, you know, if Bumble is hacked, am I happy to have my personal information out there? I'm guessing most people these days would say yes, but um, there could be some people who are highly embarrassed or highly damaged by the fact that their name is in a Bumble database somewhere. And and I think that's one of the challenges too for organisations is when you're determining under the Notifiable Data Breaches Scheme in Australia, at least, you know, one of the criteria is it's going to cause serious harm or significant harm to someone if that information is released. Now, unless you know that person's circumstances, and it does turn on a reasonableness test, but there are circumstances where you could say that, yes, disclosing that somebody was on Bumble might be damaging to them um, irreparably, but for most people, maybe not. I think that's something that organisations need to figure out in the years to come as well and the Office mm. of the Australian Information Commissioner. And, like, one of the things is in recent years, times have definitely changed in terms of how customers are looking towards businesses and how they trust them. And mm. But I still believe that there's this lack of trust being communicated at the top end. So what's your opinion on that? And what are some advice you can provide to those who are in a leadership position I think that's a really interesting assessment. And um, I have to say, I thought it was just me because I'm naturally skeptical, you know, the natural skeptic and naturally uh, cynical about most organizations. But I, I do think that there's certain things that um, leaders can do around this. And I, I do think that a lot of it does come back to the organization itself. And as we we're talking about before, you know, how do you put to the market how serious you're taking privacy if, if internally, you're not, or if internally you're just paying lip service to it. So I think one of the things that I've seen where organizations do it very well is, again, you're thinking about this privacy by design. You're thinking about, and it has been a bit of a catch cry around for a few years, but I think people are starting to get their head around, what does that actually mean? And so that privacy by design means that there isn't a simple answer for every single organization. It's about looking at your business, how you operate, and it's about making sure that 
your privacy policies and your information security policies actually match what it is that you hold and the importance of the data that you hold. And it really is looking at it not as a compliance issue. It's looking at it either as this is a fundamental human right you're trying to protect or some organisations, and there are some that do it very well, they actually see this as a competitive advantage. So they've put a lot of time and effort into ensuring that they are above reproach when it comes to privacy, because they see that as a real competitive advantage. It's that looking at it from their business perspective. And I think one of the other things from a leadership perspective is, and it will take time for this to change, but as I've said, you know, in the last 15 years being a lawyer and working across compliance and various different organisations, privacy for a long while was just another tick the box exercise. And it was a bit, I guess it was a bit like you know, oh, we've got an you know, information security person, we've got a privacy person, we've got a lawyer. What needs to happen is instead of those teams operating in silos, I think they need to be brought together. And actually, it's that sort of combination of knowledge that then goes to informing the leaders about how do all these work together. And that's taking into account, you know, the risk for the organisation and what's the organisation's risk threshold. Um, every company has its own position on where it sees what is acceptable to it and what isn't acceptable to it. It's kind of that you'll, you'll do business at a cost. Will you do business at all costs? Probably not. So there's always usually a threshold for most organisations where they say, this is too big a risk for us for the reward we're going to get. And I think that's almost where you need to bring it back to privacy as well and say, everyone in the business, you know, privacy is important. Information security is important, just like legal now is important. So how do we get everyone at the table to be those trusted advisors? How do we get those compliance type of roles to be looking at how they help the business to operate and then seeing how you capitalise on that as well. You know, we're so used to seeing these things in silos and and from a leadership perspective, you're probably getting a report up from one team and a report up from the other team and a report from your compliance team about did you tick the box on privacy, but you're not sort of seeing it as this holistic viewpoint across, well, you know, if everyone actually got together and spoke about it and looked at it from the the risk of the organisation, how much better could we do this? Um, And that does take some thinking too from if you're a compliance professional or a privacy professional, there is, and I, I know this from being an in-house lawyer and also having worn the hat of a compliance um, roles on numerous occasions, there is always that tendency to err on the side of caution and to be very conservative, but you still need to help the organisation make money. So if there's a way that leaders can help the various teams to acknowledge the risk, look at what the concerns are for the organisation and then build privacy and, and necessarily other policies around that, then I think that's got to be a better way forward so once so you said before around tick in the box you don't want companies to come across that that way so what happens if steven is a senior person in an insurance company he goes oh actually i am that tick in the box guy what is some tangible information so people don't look at it from that perspective like what do you want to see so you'd say yep this company is is doing it right versus oh this company is just doing a tick, tick in the box like what does that actually look like I'm putting myself in the shoes of, you know, in that sort of senior leadership position and looking back or or looking at the overall business. Obviously, the main driver for all companies is you need to make money. That is, they're not in business unless they do that. And I think the tangible, to me, that kind of tangible thing that you can sell to Stephen is to say, look, well, if you're only doing this as a tick the box, number one, it's probably not necessarily going to cover you. But number two, are you potentially either taking on more risk than the organization really needs to because you're collecting all this data that you don't actually need and there's no deletion policy and nobody's actually looking at it and in fact no one's realized that we've put it into office 365 and now office 365 is based in europe so we've just you know exported the data offshore it's 
based in Singapore. So there's that one aspect of ticking the box for it may not cure your um, regulatory concerns. But the other thing you've got to think about as a business is, is it actually putting more onerous conditions on the business than you actually require? So that's where I think that privacy bit by design has a lot of, um, it's hard work. It's going to take a lot of thinking and it's going to be needing to line up your privacy policies and your privacy stature with your strategic outcomes. Um, And that isn't always an easy thing to do, but it may well result in, well, it it may well result in a lesser cost of compliance because you're only doing those things which are absolutely necessary for your organisation to do. It also then gives you those sensible answers. So if the regulator comes, you can say, yes, we know where our data is being held. We know the personal information we're holding. Here's our regime for managing it. Here's what we've done recently. Here's what you're looking for. I think there's the tick the box is by default because I think people think it's easier, but I'm not convinced that it necessarily is for everyone. Mm-hmm. And from your point of view, where do you see the gaps from an enterprise perspective? Do you believe these types of organisations are prepared and where do you see they need to improve across the board? Yeah, I mean, that's another really great question. Um, I think if you ask organisations, they'll tell you that they are prepared. With the new notifiable data breaches scheme, people put a lot of time and effort in looking at their privacy policies, looking at whether they have a a data breach policy or a a cyber incident response plan and teams around that. So I think there has been from organisations a lot of Maybe not thinking is the right word, but there has been a lot of attention on privacy and making sure that the documentation lines up. And I suppose there is still an element where organisations feel that if they've got the pieces of paper in place and they've got all these you know, documents they can point to, then when the privacy commissioner comes knocking, then they can just say, well, look, we've got all this paperwork. And I think they might feel that that is adequate. But if Australia will end up following Europe and possibly even some of the more rigorous legislation that has been coming out of the Americans, most um, the California Consumer Privacy Act for one, then I'm not sure that that's going to be sufficient anymore. So I think, again, those gaps that we've talked about is from an organisational perspective, companies need to be removing or not just putting privacy in, into a compliance corner. Um, they need to actually be bringing it out front and centre. There needs to be, personally, in my view, um, I actually think that privacy should be considered as a subset of the information security. So it's about getting that security culture within the organisation. And that isn't just cyber security, that's physical security. If Steve at the insurance company has reception unmanned of a lunchtime and people can walk in and out, well, there, there are issues associated with that. So this is one of the things about Um, I guess my profession is you're always looking for what's the worst thing that could happen. And so you've got to put that hat on and say, how are we making sure that every possible moment we've done everything that we can do to make consumers feel safe? And that comes down to, do we train our people on physical security? Do we train our people on um, network security? Do we have the right policies in place? Do we tell people how we're collecting their data? Do we tell them what we're going to do? And, and do we stick to what we say we're going to do? So we've documented it. We've told the organisation this is what we're going to do. Are we doing it? If companies are honest with themselves and if employees are honest with themselves, how often do we really look at our company's policies? How often do we really think about, okay, so I need to be making sure that people don't tailgate me into the building or I need to be making sure that um, I'm not um, sharing information that I shouldn't be sharing. I think there's a lot that's been done and probably a lot of it is moving towards a really positive place. I think there's still a lot more that organisations can do. I had one crazy idea when I was preparing for this where I thought, I wonder if it's worth organisations actually considering whether they also classify their 
their data. You know how they all classify their information? You know how like governments classify information? Is there a yep. world where we could get to where companies are able to classify the information coming in to say, hey, this contains personal, you know, PII, this contains personal information. It needs to be treated as X or this contains, you know, commercial and confidence information. It needs to be treated this way. You know, applying that individual regime to the individual types of data to really show that you know what you're holding and you know how to handle it. Yeah, I think that is an interesting point uh, because I think that it also then reverse engineer to those companies that don't know they're holding PII mm. as well because I think they're just, they're just probably purely unaware and have no clue. Yes, and it's in this day and age it seems incredible that anybody could think that in, if you're operating a business in any way, shape or form that you are not holding some sort of personal information. I mean, you could be someone who... <laughs> You could be taking care of somebody's <clears throat> cat. Barbecue. You're a dog. You're a dog walker. Are you selling barbecues? <laughs> you're still. I mean, you're still at the very least going to have the the name of the dog's owner, their phone number, or you know, you're going to have the the make model and the delivery address of the barbecue, or you know, you've just shipped out a bag of new wood chips to someone. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, exactly. Well, I think most people just don't know. Like even. Like even going around talking to some like my parents' friends, like I reckon they've got no clue. A lot of them are, are finance advisors or they're they're working yeah. in, in law and they I just feel like when I talk to them, they I just I feel like I stress them out because I'm like, Oh yeah, you should probably do this, this and this and they're like, I haven't done any of that. Like yeah. uh, I, I know Carissa to these meetings because she keeps asking me about my security and privacy. <laughs> I know. I jokingly saw I saw a tweet the other day that said something like, "Does anybody else in like information security or cybersecurity feel like they can't talk about this with their families?" And I'm like, "Yes," because mine get very tired of me. But look, you know, financial services firms, even small financial advisory firms, law firms, um, accounting firms—they're all targets. It doesn't matter how big you are; they're targets for hackers because think of the information that they hold. You know, if they're doing a targeted attack as well. Yes. Yeah. And so, because you're a financial advisor, think about how much information they've got on us. You've gone and you've told them how much you earn. Probably you've given them copies of pay slips, which means that requirement, you know, when the bank calls you or you call the bank and they say, how much, you know, how much was your salary deposit last month? If you've got that information because you've hacked a financial advisor, you can get around any type of authentication requirements. You can see why those organizations are such a target because you're not just getting the usual name, address, and maybe a username and a password, you're getting real tangible, valuable information. So Mel, if people want to reach out to you because they've heard your wonderful knowledge, where can people reach out to you? Anyone, you can find me through LinkedIn. I am always on there. You can find me at Phillips Ormond Fitzpatrick Lawyers, or I am on Twitter, but I'm very bad with Twitter. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.